0: Hey, homie, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the Rasa.
1: This is for the Rasa.
2: This is the reality dysfunction. I think we're all ready to start. I'm going to, well, you know what? Why don't we go around and everybody just give their name and where they're hailing from today? So I'll start. Alex Lozada, I am currently in Brooklyn and I am a child of Colombian immigrants.
1: Juan Carlos Vega from Washington, D.C. Puerto Riqueño de la Isla, and you know, Boricuan Proud.
3: Francisco Lopez coming from Southern California, um, representing Mexico, Lansing, Chicanos, all the way through north to south, south to north.
1: My name is Ernesto Morales, Chicano out of Michigan. I live in Arizona right now. I'm a Midwest boy. That's where my heart is. Great.
2: Jomaira, do you want to just say your name and then I'll read your bio?
4: Yeah, for sure. My name is Jomaira Figueroa Vázquez and I am a Puerto Rican, raised in Hoboken, New Jersey. I live in the Midwest now. So. All right, so I'm going to start with your bio.
2: Jomaina C. Figueroa-Vasquez is an associate professor of Global Afro-Diaspora Studies in the Department of English at Michigan State University. A scholar and organizer, she is a founder of the MSU Women of Color Initiative, the Collaborative Hurricane Recovery Project, hashtag Proyecto Palabras PR, and digital material project Electric Marronage. Her published work can be found in... Hyptapia, a journal of feminist philosophy, the journal of decolonization, indigeneity, education, and society, Centro Journal, Small Acts, Frontiers Journal, Hispanophibia, and Essex Salon. So thank you, Jomina, for joining us. And if you can just start off with a little bit about telling us your story, and hopefully we'll just have a great conversation.
4: For sure, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am going to just share screen really quickly because I feel like it helps me go along with the story that I want to tell um, about myself. Let me know if, can you see the, this?
2: Yes. Yes.
4: Okay, awesome. So my name is Jomana Figueroa Vazquez, and I'm an associate professor in the department of English at Michigan State University. And I also teach in the African American and African studies program, which is now a department and also in the Chicano Latino Studies program. Um, I teach both under, undergraduate and graduate classes there. I am Puerto Rican, uh, native of Puerto Rico. Um, and right here, I love this slide because it shows a little bit of my background. And I, I'll i explain some of it. So my, my mother's from Caguas, Puerto Rico. My father's from Vega Baja. And this is a picture of Caguas, um, of Puerto Rico on the one side. On the other side, it's a photo of Hoboken, New Jersey, um, which uh, faces lower Manhattan. Uh, we're right across the bridge. Um, I mean, right across the, the Hudson River. I, you know, I'm a first generation high school and college graduate, first one in my family to kind of continue on school to my family's dismay um, that I just kept going to school. But I, my parents didn't, my father went to school like, up to the third grade and my mother went to school up to eighth grade. Um So for them, uh, schooling was important, but also super like mystifying, right? Like they didn't really know. And when, um, when I wanted to go to college, they were kind of like, no chao, no hay dinero. Like, I have no idea why you want to do this thing. It seems like really insurmountable. But when I was trying to find pictures of my family to put up, I found these photos of me and my mother, my father, my father has, has since passed away. Um, but this is a photo of me and my father at my uh, first grade graduation. And then this is a photo of me and my mother at my PhD graduation. So I thought it was just so funny that like I didn't even connect those dots about school and education and what that means to my family until like many times of like looking at these photos. I went to um, Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey for my undergraduate degree. I was a Douglas College student, Um, so Rutgers has like five colleges in the main campus, to the Women's College, which is an amazing experience. I majored in English, Puerto Rican, and Hispanic-Caribbean studies, which is now Latino and Caribbean studies, um, and also women's and gender studies. From there, I went to the University of California at Berkeley, and I earned my master's and my PhD in the Department of Ethnic Studies, where I kind of really honed in on the kind of project, which is um, my first book now. And so I'm just going to go really quickly to the next I mean, you know how to make that work. I'm just showing you a little bit of the kind of expanse of the first project. My first book is about to come out in a few weeks actually like just a little bit less than a month away. And um, it's, it's titled Diaspora: Diasporas, Vertical Diasporas, Mappings of Afro-Atlantic Literature. And what I do in this project with this map that I made on Google, the map that I have in the book is better because um, I actually got a designer to design it for me. This is like points I plotted on Google, literally. But basically what I do in this book is I look at the literature from Afro-Cuban, Afro-Puerto Rican, and Afro-Dominican writers in the diaspora. And I connect their work um, to the... Uh, to the like culture productions, literature, music, etc. um, coming from Equatorial Guinea. And Equatorial Guinea is this tiny, tiny country. It's a, it's a small square of the continent in five islands um, off the coast of Sub-Saharan Africa, and it is the only Spanish-speaking nation state um, on the continent. Um, and I look at their culture productions also produced in diaspora in Spain. And so really trying to think about what it would mean to take seriously the kind of work the imaginations, the worldviews and histories of Afro-Atlantic folks who are Spanish-speaking, right? Or who have this kind of legacy of colonialism under Spain. Um, And I really think about what it means to be on the kind of periphery of the margin, right? So what does it mean for Afro-Latinidad or for Afro-Latinx people to be on the kind of periphery of Latinx folks who are marginal. The same thing goes for like indigenous Latinx folks, right? So we can think about the ways that Afro and indigenous Latinx folks um kind of fall outside of like popular conceptions of Latinidad. The same thing goes for Equatorial Guinea, um, which uh, has this a very particular experience under Spanish colonial rule, and is only decolonized until 1968. And then it falls rapidly into two successive dictatorships. Um, The dictator of Equatorial Guinea right now is the longest-serving dictator, one of the longest-serving dictators in the world and the longest-serving dictator in Africa. Because of the kinds of political repression and lack of free press and freedom of speech, folks have to, the majority of the writers from Equatorial Guinea write from Spain, right? They write from away. And so what I'm really interested in is how, in putting together these, putting together these populations, putting their work together and trying to use them to illuminate one another. I'm interested in what they say about very important kind of preoccupations that emerge. And so in the book, I go through things like, witnessing intimacies, questions of dispossession, reparations, futurities, right? I'm um, always thinking um, through the kind of um, long histories of the Atlantic and also linking like the history of Africa with the with the kind of history that we know about like the Americas and Latinx folks. There's this really interesting history that's happening by virtue of, of the Spanish rule where there's so much linkages between, for example, Cuba and Puerto Rico and the Philippines and Guinea-Ecuatorial that we don't really get to know. And part of that has to deal with kind of like anti that is very much part of Latinidad, right? Like we're not really interested in kind of excavating those kinds of histories. And so here I have some photos of some of the things that I take up in the book and some um, art by um, Afro-Cuban writers. And what I'm working on now is Project Archive of Disappearances, where I'm kind of um, focusing in rather than kind of this expansive project that looks across the Atlantic at multiple people, Doing multiple kinds of things and multiple topics. I'm very getting very specific, and I'm looking at Puerto Rico, and I'm looking at the ways that Afro Puerto Ricans um, are erased or disappeared from the colonial archives, especially after 1898, right? And looking at that kind of gap um, in that kind of census record from 1898 to 1910, when Puerto Ricans are once again counted, and then uh, looking at the way that our kinds of Experiences, histories, forms of resistance, oftentimes don't get incorporated into the archive. But specifically looking at um, Afro Puerto Ricans in this context, in doing this work, I am looking at um, not just the archive. The photo here is um, the top photo of this church. is um, the church in my father's town in Vega Baja, in El Pueblo. Um, this is uh, Nuestra Señora de Rosario, uh, which holds the majority of the of the documents pertaining to like births, marriages, deaths. Um, but what's really interesting, when I went to go get materials from there, they told me that everything from 1790 to 1950 was off-site, and I was unable to, to to get any of that information, right? So really interesting about the kind of slippages in it, and I'm really thinking through Black Puerto Rican histories and the ways that they get kind of erased from the archive but also how they reappear in different ways and what i do is i look at the photography of uh frank espada this very important project that he did in the 1970s and 1980s called the puerto rican diaspora project which ended up being a book called um the puerto rican diaspora themes and the survival of a people which i actually happen to have a copy of that archival book here um it's an amazing text then i also look at histories of people like uh, Jean Michel basquiat who is haitian and puerto rican uh, Alfonso Arturo who, uh who is obviously, you know, one of the founders of Black Studies, as we know it today, um, and who is a who is a, a Black Puerto Rican man. And then I look at film and photo- uh, I look at a series of films. So I look at things like Delivered Vacant, which documents the kind of arsons and fires in Hoboken, New Jersey. I look at that in relationship to the kinds of histories of the documenting of the fires in the Bronx. I also look at Living Los suds which is where my family first came to when they came to the United States. Um, they went to um, South Brooklyn. My family is still in South Brooklyn. I found this film from 1984 um, called Los suds and then the kind of community project that emerged around Los suds called Living Los Sudes. Um, and what really held me to this project was the fact that uh, when, I, when I first had gotten the film, I opened it, and there's a photo here of these young men on the car and i i felt so uncanny like looking at it but then i realized that this man right here is my cousin danny right That oh, in this oh, itself. and so for Great. me the kind of full circle moment where my my family had sent me to this church right here to find records of our family and the church was saying it's not there we don't have it and then i get this film and i have my family right in my face right mm-hmm. and so really forcing um us to think differently about uh where do we find ourselves where does where does um new new forms of like media production and the kinds of art? I mean, right now like for example there's a mural in um in los sures of this photo right and it's in memory of my cousin and the young man next to him who both passed away um and so i'm just thinking about like where are the everyday places um where black puerto ricans can find themselves again right um after being disappeared from the archive and i think I have that. And then I, I guess the last thing I will share is the cover to my book, uh, which is here, um, De Diaspora." And the cover to this book is an image by Maria Magdalena Campos-Fons, who's a Afro-Cuban visual artist. is a, a pretty incredible artist. Um, and she was kind enough to let me have this image both in the book and also uh, gifted me the image for the cover of the book. And the image is called De Las Dos Aguas. And for me, it was like very evocative of the kinds of connections I was trying to make across the Atlantic, having these two women ferry um, these uh, figures in this canoe across water. Right. And so, yeah, so I think I'll, I will leave it there. That's what I got for now. So I'm looking forward to questions and, and continuing the conversation.
1: That's awesome. I really, really appreciate that. Right. bringing the perspective, the reality that we are here Afro-Latinos, right? That we are not, you know, hidden anywhere, but have been part of, you know, Latinx, Latino, Latina culture. And, you know, I was, you know, looking how you're doing the work geographically, right? And going to different spaces to do the work. And I wonder, right, as a librarian and somebody thinking about where are your sources of information, right? We're looking for our stories. Where, tell us a little bit about the importance of Latino, Latinx, ethnic studies, and why do we need to keep them when it comes, you know, to keeping of our stories? And also mention about, like, libraries, collections and archives that are really keeping the, these stories because I went to Sevilla, Spain, and I went to the Archivo de las Indias, right? And I'm like, I can't believe I'm here, right? I'm, I'm touching this or, or old stuff. But it's like, where, what's in our stories? How are, they, how are our stories portrayed in there? And I would love to know, you know, the Afro-Latino stories that are already archived. And, you know, Beyond all the new ones that we need to collect, right? Not just on what's archived, but tell us a little bit, you know, what do you think? And I wonder what's in African institutions as well. What, what do you think about the importance of these collections and these ethnic studies, you know?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And I would say, you know, first of all, it could be, I, I feel really passionate about ethnic studies. And I think part of it is because I got my PhD in ethnic studies and I had that kind of transdisciplinary training, thinking about the particular kinds of problems of modernity from a series of different perspectives, right? Um, And having that kind of long historical um, context for understanding our contemporary moment. Um, And for me, that's one of the most critical things about ethnic studies. Like, I feel oftentimes we um, are very quick to try to diagnose a problem that we have in the moment without really unearthing the root of it, right? And trying to get a sense of like, well, where did this emerge? When did it emerge? What are the things that kind of informed these particular perspectives? And how is it that this particular thing affected X, Y, Z kind of people? And without that, we're just kind of putting band-aids on our problem rather than really trying to get to the root of the cause, right? And so I really think ethnic studies um, as a whole is important. But I also wanted to speak to the question of like going like why are our archives different? Why is it that we need to kind of push to have Afro-Latinx, et cetera, et cetera, collections, right? Like ethnic studies collections and libraries. And what could that experience look like versus going to like, you know, the Archive of the Indies in Seville, which I've also been to, right? And I'll just talk a little bit about that experience um, and going to Sevilla because, you know, I went to the archive after, when I went to the church in Vega Baja, in Nuestra Señora de Rosario, I asked them for these documents and they were like, they don't don't, don't have them. They're offsite being digitized right um and they were like well you can try spain you can try spain and so i ended up having a conference in spain and i was actually really upset because i actually went to my chiquita after that <laughs> in Manabi and was like staring at the water like how fucked up is it that i need to go across the atlantic ocean to get any information about my family on this island right i was pissed and i had to like really sit like at the water and just like really think through like like the kind of fucked up parameters of, of that entire archival project, right? Of how like an archive is, you know, on the one hand, it's stored away safely when it's processed, right? But then again, everyday people don't really have access to it. So punto, there was that. But when I went to Sevilla and I asked some questions about, you know, and I went and I went specifically to look at the ultramarine archives because the ultramarine archives are the ones where they're keeping the Bakua and Puerto Rico, right? So I'm like, okay, I know they have these archives. They have the ship logs. I want to see the ship log, And I said, I went and I was like, I'm doing this project about black Puerto Ricans and slavery. Que si esto que si otro. And they were looking at me like, esclavitud. And I'm like.
3: Mm.
4: <laughs> Plus I'm like, you need a letter. Seropana, <laughs> like how do you think that I'm sitting here talking to you in Spanish? Like what, how do you think this happened? You know, like what process are you missing? that like 500 years later, you have a black Puerto Rican girl be like, Pero, ¿tú tienes esto? you know, buscando esto? You know blah, 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 blah. And they're like, slavery. Oh, no, I don't know. I don't think we have, no, tenemos, no. Yo no sé. And I'm like, come on, man. Like I, I see the findings. You have this stuff. And what they did is they like stuck me with a stack of like very dusty. If you've been there, you, you had the very dusty log books where they tell you like how much bacalao they put on the ship and how much, you know, this. And I'm like, Y'all are trash for this. Like, y'all are trash (laughs) for, like, basically burying me in paper, you know? Um, But it was kind of this, like, disidentification with, like, trying to understand how even, like, how dare I even have that question, right? As if it had nothing to do with the nation or with the archive. Like, this is the ultra-marine archive. This is the colonial archive, right? And so, for me, that was this kind of very weird experience. um, But it made me really think about the need for first, like ethnic studies librarians who know the material, who have not just the background, like (laughs) not just the background and the training, but also the kind of political and ethical commitment to not try to like whitewash the kinds of things that we're looking for. And we also need our collections to be taken care of in a very generous way, right? So when I went to, for example, to Duke University, to the Rubenstein Library to look at the Frank Espada papers, you know, they had been gifted those papers, or they had bought those papers from Frank Estrada years ago, but they hadn't processed them yet. So when I asked to go to see them in like 2017, maybe 2018, I was the first person to see them. And wow. so the librarians were like busting their asses, like just like you know, going through the materials and trying to like um to process them as I was as as I was looking through boxes, right? Um, and, but at the same time, they were like very gentle, like they knew, like they were like, we're so sorry. We just haven't gotten a chance to do it. And they were very, um, generous and they were very like, um, expedient with it. And I also got into like a really great repertoire with them where I was like, oh no, these photos, you have these photos in D.C. these photos are from Hawaii. This photo goes in this box. You messed it up and put it in. You
1: were cataloging for them. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Um, so there's that. Um, and I think that like, for example, MSU has a, the this a Chavez collection, with y- which y'all were a huge part of creating, right? Um, and that is an invaluable archive, right? Like I, you know, I bring my students there, um, to meet with the librarians to kind of see the different kinds of things that we have. Um, those things are rare, right? Like, and we actually need a lot more folks to kind of tend to the stuff. But in addition to that, and I'll just, I'll keep it short we not only need to get our stuff into institutions, that's like part of it, but because the kind of bad side of that is that it becomes exclusive, right? Like you really need, you need papers, you need reasons, you need rationale to go see things that belong to your community. On the other hand, we need to think about like radical archiving projects, ways that we can teach families how to take care of their own materials and their photographs and, you know, like, to kind of tend to each other's like histories and life. And if they want to donate that, that's great. But if they want to keep it, not, not everything has to be institutionalized, right? So I think that there's a duty that we have also to kind of be skeptical about the institution and think away, think about ways that are community-centered and, and family-centered in order to support people to keep the things that are most valuable to them, right? Um, we see hundreds of years later how important it is, for example, like, how, like the struggle that, for example, Native people have with their materials being, they're like, they're really important, like, materials being, like, sequestered in an archive or a museum, right? Yeah. And see it through a glass. So there's that, yeah.
2: That reminds me, you have on your signature of your email a really interesting statement that I've never seen before on anybody's. And I don't, I'm going to try to quickly pull it up um, while we're chatting, because I want to read it aloud. I mean, all of us have this connection to Michigan State, so here it is. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe. and I'm sorry for mispronouncing a lot of these words. The Three Fires. The Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Staginaw we affirm indigenous sovereignty and hold Michigan State University accountable to the needs of American Indian and indigenous people. We take a lot of pride in being this land grant. And what does that mean, really? But And I think this really
4: feeds into that. Yeah, I mean, MSU is not just a land grant institution. It's the first land grant institution, right? And there, it's really interesting because land acknowledgments were very common in California when I was coming up through graduate school, when I was in the East Coast, I'd never heard of it. Like, you know, coming up in the East Coast, the kinds of indigenous memory of survivance and existence is completely erased from our schooling, right? So when I first met like Native folks in California, I was like, hold on a second. (laughs) 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 The teacher told me (laughs) it was a wrap for y'all, right? Like, and it was like a really deep ignorance from me on my end and really kind of coming to learn that history. And so encountering the kind of land acknowledgement in California where the the, like the memory of indigenous survivance and resistance is so much more readily accessible. Not that it is like everywhere and it definitely needs to be um, seen more, but that, and understood more, but that in comparison to where I came up on the East coast, it was like a whole new world for me. This particular land acknowledgement that is in my email comes from the MSU American in and Indigenous Studies program, which is led by Professor Dylan Miner. And in 2018, they collectively, like the, the faculty in AISP, put together this land kind of acknowledgement. And it's a much longer acknowledgement. But one of the things that has become really important for me to think about, both not even in like my kind of, kind of like ethical pol- political alignment, but also even in my own work, is thinking about these kinds of like overlapping forms of dispossession, right? that are endemic to colonialism and that, like, bring us here to, to this land, right? And so, first, like, MSU's, the way, it's always made me really uncomfortable the way that, like, administrators at MSU talk about being a land-grant institution because when MSU was founded, there were indigenous encampments all along the Red Cedar River, right? And they were forcibly removed in order to continue to build and expand the campus, now there is no plaque, there is no acknowledgement of that. Actually, American Indian Indigenous Studies has the smallest space, like physical space on campus of any program, um, particularly in the College of Arts and Letters, and it is in the Urban Planning Building, which is a building that is scheduled to be demolished, right? Like so you can imagine, like, you know, it is
1: shit don't change, man.
4: <laughs> so you can think about how how, you know, this entire enormous campus. was once Indigenous lands, and now those folks have been completely erased and taken off of that land, and then given a very small, small, like, two-room program, right? And how is it that we can talk to our... For me, it's really important. Like, how is it that we can not only acknowledge that history, but affirm that history and say, okay, no, we understand that this is true. We stand alongside of of you, and particularly our indigenous faculty and indigenous students and our indigenous community, the Anishinaabe community, the Ojibwe uh, Ojibwe community, Potawatomi and Odawa community that are here in in mid-Michigan and in the Lansing area. And how do we continue to uh, hold the university accountable for the kinds of things that they continue to do in erasing both uh, the legacies of indigenous land and dispossession, but also kind of erasing the kinds of forms of of sovereignty that folks are attempting to enact. So for me, that land acknowledgement is something that is in my email, but it's also in a lot of professors' emails. A lot of us, especially those of us who are aligned with AASP, have that in our emails. Um, It's also on all my syllabi. Um, It's something that I talk to my students about at the beginning of class, especially when we're, for all my classes that are basically ethnic studies classes, you know, we open up, I'm like, okay, like this is what's going on. And we're going to talk about all these histories of like, you know, the dehumanization of Black people and Latinx people, Indigenous people. Like, But first we need to know whose land we're standing on as we're talking about this. If we erase that, then we're like just bullshitting, right? I would say one more thing about it is like, for me, when I was writing my book, I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about Michigan and how little I know about Michigan actually. Like, obviously I'm just like a transplant here. And I went to a talk by one of the native law professors at MSC Winona Single. And she was talking about Bert, the Burt band or Lake, Bert, Burt Lake. And she was talking about the kinds of system systemic dispossession of this band of native people um, off this land. And I remember being feeling the a kind of uncanny feeling because oftentimes when we think about Puerto Rico, we're thinking about this like very decisive moment of 1898, right? Like where we are, you know, uh, you know, participating um in what we think is a freedom fight and we end up being uh, recolonized by the United States in the process. And then in 1898 and in 1899 in learning from Winona single, this band of indigenous people at Burt Lake are not only pushed off the land, but then burned out of their land. And so for me, I write about that in the very beginning of my book to think about these, like how, like when I'm thinking about like the kind of violence of colonialism and imperialism and dispossession, right? Like people being forced off their lands, I don't only want to evoke Puerto Rican history or Caribbean history. I also have to contend with at that very same moment, something very similar was happening here from the very same place that I'm writing this chapter. And so for me, it's, uh, that is like an important politics to keep in mind. It's like, it's never only you, it's you in relation to these other folks, you know? And so, yeah, I think I'll leave it there. Yeah.
3: Yomita, you you talk about getting our archives into these institutions, but I have to ask the question, do they want our history? Are these institutions, do they want our history? Do they want our
4: records? Um, you know, I don't know. I think they want them if they're cheap. <laughs> um it's all the price. <laughs> and I also think, you know, there are some institutions who like specialize in having these particular things. Like for example, if you want to do anything on Cuba, you go to UNC Chapel Hill, right? Like they have all the papers. If you want to do something on Haiti, then you go to the University of Miami, right? Like, so there's these kinds of institutions where, you know, they specialize in particular kinds of things. And I think that's like the nicest answer. But I think like the more honest answer that I would have is like, nah, I don't think that they they want anything from us, right? Um, I think they'd be, you know, one of the, I think one of the things that is most frustrating to, to who, how do I say this? one of the most frustrating things about Latinx folks to the U.S. empire is our quote-unquote inability to assimilate, right? We're not just racial others. We're also linguistic others, right? And we not only, you know, have uh, have the kind of long legacy of being or, or having kind of dispossessed Mexicans of their land, right, um, of like a whole third of the country, but that we retain particular kinds of ties to our culture, right? And identity. And I think that's frustrating. I think it'd be way easier for everybody, right? It would be way easier for empire if we just like whitewashed ourselves and anglicized ourselves and just like, and just like hailed the history of the, of, you know, the kind of false foundational myths of the nation rather than continually trying to excavate our past, right? And our present. And I think that reminds me of, Arthur Schomburg's really important essay, The Negro Digs Up His Past, where he talks about, like, you know, being told, and he's an adult didact, right? He doesn't have a PhD. He's, like, hanging out with all these Harlem Renaissance folks who are, like, super educated, et cetera, et cetera. And yet still he's building all these libraries for these um, historically black colleges and and universities. And he's saying, actually, you know, they told us that we weren't anything. They told us that we had no history, that there was nothing important about us. But in fact, if the Negro digs up his past, which is our job, um, then we actually will find these histories that are really important to us, right? That actually serve to fortify us for the long struggle ahead, right? And so I think there's part of the question whether, like, do the institutions want the archives that's one part of it, but the other part is like, you know, despite what the institution wants, despite what empire wants from us, despite you know all those things, what do we continue to do, right? Like we're not going to just give up because the institution is the one. We'll find other ways to do the work, right, um, and to to get that out there, and also to like, you know, I think part of the the thing is like we don't only want to acknowledge or or like um, or prop up only what the institution thinks is important. Because we can have like a whole vast thing, like uh, array of things that'll be like, they'll cherry pick, they'll be like, oh, I like that. And I want that paper and everything else is trash. We don't want that, right? So we also don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that what the institution valorizes is what we should like validate, right? But instead we should um, be really skeptical of what institutions actually want and think really kind of against the grain in many ways, which is what a lot of historians, especially ethnic studies historians um, think through. There's a historian that's coming to mind right now who is uh, Delia Fernandez, who is um, a Grand Rapids native. She's Puerto Rican and uh, Mexican from Grand Rapids, and she does the history of uh, Latinos in Grand Rapids. So she'd be a great person also to talk to about this, but really reading up against that.
3: Yeah, so you might have, it seems like you're already building that bridge and doing a little research. I found out that you did have a project, or you had a project going on with students from Everett High School there in Lansing, where you took them actually back to Puerto Rico, right? To learn about, you know, Puerto Rico and after last hurricane, and in hearing some of those perspectives with students, it clearly makes an impact, right? It's definitely planting that seed. Could you follow up a little bit on that?
4: Absolutely. So that trip um, is with Proyecto Palabras PR, which is a group of uh, faculty uh, from MSU and also from Johns Hopkins, as well as like graduate students from like. Rutgers, MSU, U of M at a certain point, um, that student is now at MSU. And then, and Yagrumo, which is like this uh, kind of experimental artist collective in Puerto Rico. And so what happened was, um, after Hurricane Maria, uh, we applied very quickly for like a grant from MSU. and We were able to secure a grant, fly down to the island, and then conduct a series of interviews um, with folks in kind of the most rural communities. And also work, uh, talk with community activists and organizers, and most of them were all women um, who were doing this work. We have some really funny stories about that situation um, for another time. But what we did is we started to build these like uh, collaborations with folks. And we thought like, you know, this cannot be just a one-time event. It can't just be us coming here with money for interviews and for supplies and for, you know, whatever. It has to be like a continual development of a relationship. And so um, what happened was, is that the spring, the following spring, uh, once things had settled down a little bit infrastructurally in Puerto Rico, we brought down the first group of students which were part of the... Citizen Scholars Program in the College of Arts and Letters. And then we brought an artist to MSU, Mayra Santos Febres who's probably like the most famous like Black Puerto Rican writer, um, one of the most important living writers from the Caribbean. And then we worked with Mayra in the experimental group, Yagurumo, to then in the second year, which was just this spring before the COVID pandemic, we made it like just in time. We were there the very uh, first week of March. Uh, we brought in students from Everett High School. We brought in undergraduates from MSU and also graduate students from MSU. And graduate students usually don't get to go on these study away programs, and for me was really important because I was teaching uh, two classes, one in Chicano Latino Studies and one in English, Race, Gender, and the Human, and then doing one from the entrance of the monster, taking up, you know, Jose Martí's you know, famous edict that he was writing from the intros of the of the monster of the U.S. I wanted to bring them to kind of meet these folks, and so we had this kind of like multi-age group of students going to Puerto Rico. We took them to like the interior of the island. We took them to Arjuntas, um, which is like not San Juan, it's not Ponce, it's not Rincón, it's not Mayagüez, It's the mountains. They had there was nothing to do except for what we were taking them to, or at least that's what we thought. Um well, Yeah, <laughs> um, but we had a really amazing time, and so we took them. Um, on a series of uh, workshops with different um, groups on the island. And then after a few days in juntas, um, we went to Santurce, which is um, a historically Black community founded by uh, maroon uh, slaves in Puerto Rico. And we took them there and we kind of went and looked at the kind of public art in that place. And it really changed the student's perspective because we we're reading about all these things in the, in the classes. This A lot of the students, Because we're in Michigan, a lot of them are like Chicanos, right? Central American. So they had no context for Puerto Rico. A lot of them were like going in, they're like, oh whoa, I had no idea. I thought this was gonna be like people with no shoes and you know, like just really out there ideas of like what Puerto Rico is gonna be like. But then also really like, for example, the the one thing that I really loved about the students from Everett High School is that they funded themselves. Like they were so about it. Like the first year, because Estrella Torres was the one that was teaching. The first year that we went to Puerto Rico, and she was like, oh, I won't be here, you guys, next week, because I'm going to take these students from MSU to Puerto Rico. And they like, we want to go to Puerto Rico. And she was like, well, it's too late. We're leaving. Maybe next year. And the next year, these students raised their own money to go. Like, they didn't forget. They were like, we're going this year, you know? Nice. And they sold, like, choco flan. They sold. They sold, like, they like were just selling candy and all types of stuff. And then they not only were able to get, pay their way to Puerto Rico, but they also raised, like, $800 for the high school in Adjuntas so they could get their um, theater fixed because they had like a situation with the, um, with the drama club and the theater. And that was like the main thing that the students in that home to do because there's nothing to do. Um, and it's the ever- high school students raised that money. Not my college students, not my graduate students, the high school students did it. Awesome. So it was a really, this moment of like solidarity, right? And if it wasn't for the pandemic, one of the things that we were going to do is then bring a group of the people in Puerto Rico to MSU, right? And then have the students take them around and show them around the community here. But, you know, we're going to put a pin in that for next time. But I think that kind of thing is really important. I really think of it as like not only like um, in uh, an intellectual exchange, but like kind of like an exchange of like solidarity and a political exchange, you know. And I'm really thankful that I'm in an institution that supports that kind of stuff because MSU, the College of Arts and Letters, really helps subsidize the cost of the students going to work, especially the majority of the students that went on the trip were students of color and first generation students across the board. And so that was huge because a lot of us don't have the money to go to these, have these experiences, right? And then as a result, you have a very kind of different group experience when you, when you don't go with these kinds of students.
1: This is the end of the first part of the Reality Dysfunctions conversation with Dr. Yomada Figueroa. Please download part two and finish listening to this interesting conversation about Afro-Latino identity. In the meantime, please like the Reality dysfunction podcast on Facebook or leave us a comment on our Podbean site. Until next time.
0: In Miami, just Guantanamera. We're That was This si is now. Welcome to the carnival. i well. well. like Mavado and shook her hips like Delgado and rolled it down from the ground to Apollo and then some, she took her accident to dim sum and waited patiently while the businessmen come, born late on purpose, got even politician service and made plans to infiltrate the street secret service, this gentle flower, fertility was a power, sweet persona, Venus flytrap prima donna, can't sit down, can she turned De Niro to De Niro, I'm standing at the bar with her. You watch it off. Guantanamera. I think she's mine.